We are in a series right now titled Once Upon a Time. We started this on April the 8th, and we've taken some weeks off for Father's Day, Mother's Day, a few other standalone sermons. But we're almost done. Today's week nine, and we're going to finish this next Sunday. Next Sunday. Don't miss it because it's the end. If you were here at the beginning, you're going to come back for the end. You're going to at least get the bookends if you didn't get every single one in between. By the way, most of these, uh, I think minus one, most of these sermons are online. You can catch up there. And uh, today I want to talk to you a message that I've entitled simply from the passage that we're going to read today. Put your house in order. Put your house in order. I'm going to invite you to bow as we go to the Lord in prayer before we begin our message today. Father, we're grateful today for allowing us the time and the opportunity to come together on this Sunday. I thank you for this group of people who could have chosen to be somewhere else, but they chose to be here to sing to you and worship to surrender our hearts and our wills to you and to hear what you have for us through, through your word that is going to be preached right now. I pray that you would open our hearts, open our understanding and draw us near to you, that we might be obedient to your word, that we might be not only hearers of your word, but doers of it also. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a king in Judah... And he was a good king, which is unusual. In fact, it was quite shocking to say that, that there was a good king in Judah or in Israel. Because what, this, what we've discovered in this series is that uh, there were many, many bad kings, evil kings in Israel and in Judah. Last week we learned about one of them. His name was Jehu. Last week we learned about King Jehu. If you weren't here, you can uh, listen to that online. And Jehu was a good king until the end of his life. Sadly, he didn't finish well. And then after him, there was this long line of terrible kings in both Israel and in Judah. Evil kings. This is what we call during the time. These are very ancient stories. Some of them I've been telling you to go back to a thousand years before Christ. The one we're talking about today is about 700 years before Christ. But this is during the divided kingdom in which Israel, which originally was just one nation. At this point in time, now there are two nations. Okay, so the, uh, initially it was just Israel, but then it, did, it split into two. And it wasn't a nice split. And the two nations were called Israel. That was the northern part of the of the original nation of Israel, retained the name of Israel. And the southern kingdom was called what? Judah. Judah. Yes, Judah. All right. So there were two, two nations that originally were one. Now they were divided into two. And, and uh, Israel was a bigger nation. It was made up of ten tribes. Judah was smaller, made up of, of two tribes. But the, the kings of, of Israel in particular were, were evil kings or bad kings. And Judah oftentimes just went along with them. In fact, things got... So bad, they got so bad, that this is how the Bible describes that period of time. In 2 Kings 17, 15, the Bible says, talking about the people of Israel, they worshipped worthless idols, so they became worthless themselves. And that says a lot. That, first of all, it tells us that what we worship, we become. And if you worship worthless things that, that don't help you, worthless things that hurt you, then that's what you become. So today we're going to talk about a king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a, a son of 
another one of these very wicked kings, Hezekiah's father was named Ahaz. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. He was very young. Next we're going to talk about a king who became king when he was just a boy. But today Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became a king. And he was very zealous for the Lord. He was a good man. He was a good man. He loved God. He served God. He was zealous for doing the right things. He trusted in God. So the Bible says that there was nobody like him before. Among all the kings of Judah, there was nobody like him before or nobody like him after, afterward. Until we get to the story of King Josiah, whom we'll talk about next week. And during his reign, there was a lot of work to do. Because... Uh, his father Ahaz had been a wicked king. And so when Hezekiah took over for his father's king, he had a lot of cleaning up to do among the nation of Judah. There were a lot of pagan altars. There was a lot of idol worship. There were temples to false, God that had, false gods that had been built by, by uh, Ahaz. And now Hezekiah had to destroy those. Uh, there was this bronze serpent. If you know the history of Israel, the bronze serpent that Moses had made in the desert, that God had used, God had used his bronze serpent to heal the people who, had, who were getting uh, bitten by snakes. But then the people of Israel turned something good, something God had used, it turned it into an idol and started worshiping the bronze serpent. And so Hezekiah had to come along and destroy that too. Uh, his father uh, Ahaz had shut the door of the temple in Jerusalem. He nailed them shut. So Hezekiah had to come along and, and open the doors again and clean it out and restore the worship. The, the priesthood that God had established was reinstated. The Passover was reinstated as a national holiday. I mean, there was all kinds of reforms under Hezekiah and revival, in fact, that came to Judah. And because he was a man who had put everything uh, in his life he had, into God's hands and he had put God first, and everything that he did. Then God blessed him. God prospered him. See, that's the way it works. And God prospered him. The Bible says that he was successful in everything he undertook. Because he trusted God. But then we, we've, we come to a part in the story where Hezekiah and all the nation of Israel faced a crisis. The dominant world power at that time was a nation by the name of Assyria. And the Assyrians were, were cruel people. That It was a strong nation. And they were conquering. The, the king of, of Assyria was a man by the name of Sennacherib. Sennacherib. And he was conquering nation after nation. In fact... He had conquered the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. He's coming south. He's coming for Judah next. He's coming for Jerusalem. He's coming for Hezekiah next. And he not only was a powerful king with a powerful army, but he was also a man who, who liked to mock God. He mocked the God of Israel. He threatened Judah and he mocked the God of Judah. And he defied God. He likened him to the, the powerless false gods of other nations. He said, I'm going to take you too. Just because you believe in Yahweh doesn't mean anything to me. And so he would mock God. He would mock the people of Judah. He would send them letters. He would, he would send them letters calling them names and, and making fun of them, mocking them. If, if uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, lived during our time, he would have a Twitter account. He would get on Twitter in the mornings and make fun of people and mock them and threaten them because that's what he was doing. He was doing it through letters. He would send letters to the king, to Hezekiah, send letters to their leaders, and, and he would threaten them and laugh at them. And this was having an effect 
on Hezekiah was having an effect on the people of, of Judah. So then God, through the prophet, who, who at that time was ministering, was a prophet of a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And God sent a message through Isaiah that he was in control of this and that Sennacherib and the Syrians would not be able to do what he was threatening to do. That in fact, God was going to do something that they would, they would cause him to just turn around and go home. And so, and I love what Hezekiah did. Hezekiah took his, the letter. It's a threatening letter. It's a mocking letter that he had gotten from Sennacherib. And he took the letter and he went into the temple and he spread the letter out and he said, God, look at this. Here's what is happening. Now, He's concerned. He's, he's really in, in, in somewhat of a, uh, a desperate situation. And he says to, to him, God, deliver us from this man's hand. Deliver us so that all the world may know that you alone are God. Well, God is faithful as always. And he kept his promise to protect Jerusalem because that night after Hezekiah prayed, that night the Bible says that God sent an angel who went out into the camp of the Assyrians. And in one night, 185,000 people or troops, 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian camp were killed by the angel of the Lord. When the, the Bible says when, when the, the army you know, soldiers, when they got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Can you imagine the optics of 185,000 dead bodies? All around you. That will have an effect on you. More than threatening letters that the king had been, had been sending. More than the mocking. More than the making fun of God. Making fun of God's people. More than the name calling. When they saw 185,000 soldiers on the ground. Dead. They had, a, just had an awful effect on them. And so quickly they said we're going home. And they broke camp. And very timidly. Very humbly, they went back in abject defeat. And just a few years later, uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was killed by his own sons, by the way, while he was worshiping at the temple of one of his false gods. God had taken care of them. So, so Hezekiah was having great success as a king. Great success. But then something happens we're going to read about in Second Chronicles 20, beginning with verse 1. So if you would... A turn in your Bible to so 2 Chronicles 20, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read about that. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And this next sentence just really stirs me. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Hezekiah wept bitterly. Verse 4 says, Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. 
Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs. A poultice is like an ointment. Prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil and he recovered. Wow, well, what just, what just happened here? I mean, God said Hezekiah was going to die. Then he changed his mind. He decided to heal him. But then Isaiah applied this fig ointment to the boil that was causing his illness. And Hezekiah was healed. So who healed him? Was it God or was it the ointment? Was it God or was it the medicine, as it were? In fact, after he was healed, Hezekiah had the same question. He asked Isaiah for a sign so he would know that the healing came from God. And it wasn't just a fig ointment that... You know, that the fig ointment was just a, a symbol. He wants to know, you know, I want to know, is God, God really going to do this? Did God really do this? And so the Bible says that Isaiah told him, okay, this is a sign that the Lord uh, is going to give you to prove that he will do as he promised. And he asked him a question, what do you want as, as, sign, as a sign of this? What do you want? Would you like the shadow on the sundial to go forward 10 steps, or do you want the shadow on the sundown to go backward 10 steps? And this guy said, well, it's easy for it to go forward. That's what it does anyway. Make it go backwards. And sure enough, uh, Isaiah asked God to do this, and God caused the shadow on the sundial to move backwards 10 steps as proof that God says, or God does what He says He's going to do. And this was already the second miracle. The first was that He was healed, and then that God proved it to him that it was, it was his act that by which he was healed. So two miracles, two for the price of one. But let's go back to Isaiah's first message to Hezekiah when he said to him, you will surely die, so put your house in order. Put your affairs in order. That was, that was a hard thing for Hezekiah to hear. Can you imagine he was actually only about 39 years old. He's in the prime of his life. 39 years old. Do I have anybody here 39? I was there a long time ago. <laughs> okay. 39 years old. In the prime of his life. And he was successful as a king. Everything is going for him. Going well for him. And God says to him, Put your house in order. You will not recover from this illness. Now, that's an important message for all of us, not just for him. No matter how old or how young you are, you must listen to this. Put your house in order. And it was hard for him to, to receive. He, he wasn't ready to die. He prayed to God. He wept bitterly. This was serious. This was serious. But then something amazing happened. God seemed to change his mind. Isaiah, as we read, was still on the grounds Hadn't left when God spoke to him and said, go back and give him another message. And the message is, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to add 15 years of life. 15 years to your life. So what can we learn from this story? Here's, here's some things that I think we can, we can learn from this story. The first one is this. God has our lives in His hands. God has... Our lives in His hands. See, the foolishness of the people of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, the foolishness of those people in those days was to leave behind the one true God, Yahweh, to leave the one true God behind and to follow other gods. That didn't make any sense. The other gods were false gods. The other gods were man-made. They had no power. They had no wisdom. They were, they, they were, um, uh, they were not omnipotent. Or omniscient. Only Yahweh was omnipotent. All 
powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent. Only God was those things, and He still is today. He holds our lives in His hands. And the Bible says in Job 14.5, a person's days are determined. This is uh, talking to, to God. You have decreed the number of His months. And you have set limits he cannot exceed. A person's days are determined by God. God says, sets and he decrees the number of months we're going to live. He, he sets the limits of our life. And we can't exceed those limits no matter how, how, how much we try or how hard we try. In 1989, when my older brother, who was older by two years, died suddenly. He was 32 years old. He basically Collapsed and died. He was kept on a ventilator for a few hours, but he, he died of a brain aneurysm when he was 32. And it was very hard for us to accept. It was very hard for us to wrap our mind around the fact that one moment he's here, then he's gone. And it was tragic. And uh, it was hard. I remember thinking, I will never get over this pain. I will never get over this. But, of course, God in His faithfulness healed our, our family and uh, but during those days, right after his death, before the before the funeral, people were offering words of comfort. And somebody read this verse to me and my dad. And I was watching my dad, and immediately my dad, I could tell when he heard this, was comforted by that. And he, in fact, the man who shared this with us was Brother Santos Becerra. And he told he told him, like, oh, read that again, and he read it again. A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. I myself found that very comforting to know that God was in control and that he sets the limits and we don't go past those days because I was thinking, wow, that is much more comforting than to think this was some random thing. Like he, he shouldn't have died and, 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 and maybe we did something wrong and you know all kinds of things that go through our mind and then come to find out God has everything in his hands. And the biggest mistake we can make is to live as if we have everything under our control. As if we really are the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. That's just not true. If it were true, it would be very sad. For me, it would be very sad to, to, to think that my life is being controlled by someone as foolish as me. As ignorant as me. By someone who can't go a day without making a mistake. I would be so saddened by the fact, um, if, that were, if that were true, knowing or thinking that I control my own life. But thank God that He is in control of our lives. He can run our lives much better than we can. But we must acknowledge that and we must turn our lives over to Him. We must surrender our will to Him and live for His will. And, but this has to be more than a mental acknowledgement. It's got to be a decision to allow God to transform our hearts and to change the direction of our lives. It's got to be a decision based on the fact that we know Jesus died for our sins and we accept that sacrifice and we accept Him not just as a Savior of our souls, but as a Lord of our lives. Because God has our lives in His hands. Secondly, we, we learn from this story that God responds to our prayers God responds to our prayers. He may not always answer the way we want, but He responds to them. Our prayers, in other words, 
This is going to sound kind of strange, but I want you to think this through. Our prayers have an effect on God and on the way that He works out His plan for us. Have you ever considered that what happens in our lives might be determined both by God's plan and by our prayers? That doesn't mean that we get to, uh, can get God to do something that He doesn't want to do, but He says, I didn't really want to do that, but you prayed. No, that's not what we're talking about. It, it just means that we can maybe affect God to where He does something that He's wanted to do for us anyway. And He sees our prayer. Maybe He, he hears our prayer. Maybe He sees our tears. In other words, if we align our prayers to God's will, God will respond, displaying His power on our behalf. So let us not lose the conviction that prayer changes things. And sometimes what prayer changes is us. Sometimes He doesn't change the circumstances the way we want, but He changes us to where we see the circumstances differently. Maybe we pray differently, and then that's a prayer that God answers. But we can't lose the conviction that prayer changes things. We must not stop praying. Hezekiah believed this. Hezekiah was a man of prayer. We see this throughout his reign. We didn't read this whole story. You've got to read three chapters in fact, the story of Hezekiah is not only in 2 Kings, it's also in 2 Chronicles, it's also in Isaiah. Isaiah was a friend of his. He was a, the prophet who ministered during that time. And in chapter 38 of Isaiah, we read some of the rest of this story. We get some other, some other background information. And so we see by reading these combined accounts that Hezekiah was a man of prayer. When he had a problem, he prayed. When he was in despair, he prayed. When he was thankful, we don't see this in 2 Kings 20, but we see it in Isaiah. When he was thankful to God because God healed him and, and gave him these additional 15 years of life, then he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to God. It's evident that his life was built on prayer. It wasn't just a one-time prayer that he said because, oh no, God is telling me, put your house in order. I, I better seek God now. No, it wasn't a one-time thing. He wasn't just praying out of desperation. But it, it, it was a prayer that was built on a life of prayer. It was an urgent prayer. And maybe there was a sense of desperation there. But it was an, a, a, an urgent prayer based on a lifetime of prayer. And if you would allow me for a minute or two to draw an analogy from running. As a runner, I basically do two types of running. One is called base building. Base building. Before I train for a race, I have to build a base. I can't just start doing workouts for the race. I've got to build a base. And the base is simply running and running and running. It's just mileage, adding mileage. Uh, base building is, is done daily. Or in my case, it's every other day because it's harder at my age to run every day. So I need to, I need to have a recovery day. But base building is done regularly. You just run and you build, you're building a base. You're not working out. You're not doing any, any, any kind of difficult workouts. You're just running, building a base, adding miles. But then when it's time for a race, then you enter something a little more urgent. Now you start the workouts. Not, now you're not just adding miles, but now you're uh, doing the speed drills. You're doing something called tempo runs. You're doing the negative splits. All these different workouts that are very hard. That's why they're called workouts. And they're difficult, but they're impossible to do if you haven't first built the base. See, so there are two types of running. The, 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 more, the workouts are more urgent because you've got a deadline of a race, but they're built on top of the daily running as a base. 
And I think the same thing applies to our prayer. We have to build a base for our lives, a base of daily praying, regular praying. We get up in the morning and the first thing we do is spend a few minutes with God. Or maybe at night if that works for your schedule better. We spend some time with God. But sometimes an urgent need comes along. Sometimes a problem arises. And that's when we turn to God in fervent prayers and tears. But that urgent prayer is more powerful when it's built on the base of daily praying. Both are necessary. Both are important. We've got to practice both. When God told Hezekiah, put your house in order, he was exercising his power and control over his life. But Hezekiah's response was to pray that prayer that seems like a one-time prayer, but it was actually built on a base of daily praying. And thank God for that, that warning. God told them, put your house in order. Thank God for that warning. Wouldn't it be great if God would still warn us before we die? Wouldn't it be great if we were to get a message from God that said, get ready, put your house in order because you only have one week to live or 30 days to live. Wouldn't that be great? You know, thinking back to my brother, he got up that morning. It was a Monday, November 13th, 1989. He got up that morning and uh, he told his wife he had a headache, but he had no idea what was going to happen. We had no idea what was going to happen. It totally blindsided us. Wouldn't have been great for him or for us to have had a warning? But you know what? We do get warnings. Every one of us. God reminds us daily to put our house in order. I believe that every day you get some kind of reminder, uh, maybe a warning to get your house in order, for us to get our house in order, specifically our spiritual house. Today that warning may be coming through this sermon. Other days it might be through a health issue. Through a doctor's report. Even in good days in which we seemingly face no problems. In days in which we see God's goodness in our lives. That goodness of God, that blessing of God in our lives might be the reminder that we need to acknowledge God's goodness and turn our lives over to Him. I don't know how many times I've heard people say to me, especially young parents, I just feel like we need to to get back to church. Or I just feel like we needed to get our children to church. Those are all God's reminders to put your house in order. That's God stirring people. Put your house in order. Get your spiritual affairs in order. If you feel guilty about missing church, that could be God's warning. If you've ever said, I don't deserve this life. In a negative sense, like, I don't deserve the bad things that are happening. Or in a positive sense, like, God has blessed me so much. I don't deserve my kids, my, my wife, my job. I don't, either way, that could be God's reminder. Put your house in order. And please, please, please don't misunderstand and think that I'm saying that if, it, if you ignore God, you might lose your life tomorrow. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm not God. God has your life in His hands, not me. But I just want us to be reminded that God does speak to us because He wants us to be ready. The Bible says that it is appointed once to die and after this the judgment. So there's judgment coming for all of us. For all of us. And we've got to be ready. Amos 4.12 says, prepare to meet your God. There's got to be a time of preparation. And so every day I believe God sends reminders to us. Put your house in order. That stirring we feel. That uh, maybe that anxiety, maybe that you know, that guilt, whatever it might be, God alone knows He's God. I don't judge people, but God might be 
allowing something in your life as a warning or as a reminder. Put your house in order. And finally, I want us to know today that the time to put your house in order is now. Now is the time. See, we have a tendency to put off important things. Do any of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, do any of you practice something called procrastination? All right. I think it's human nature to procrastinate. It's human nature to put things off, especially things that maybe are, are unpleasant to do, like doing your taxes or writing that research paper or whatever it might be. And we tend to put things off. When, when I was in, in college, my roommate at one time expressed his... Uh, he was just upset with himself because he was a procrastinator, like many of us. And he expressed his disgust, his displeasure with himself. And this way he got up one morning and he had gone to bed that night without finishing an assignment and get put it off. And then he was so upset with himself. He got up that morning and he said to me, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to build an altar right here next to my bed to procrastination and just get up and worship him every morning because that's my God. And, uh, and I laugh because uh, not too many day, days prior to that, we lived in a, uh, in a, it was a small dorm. And so there was down the hall from our dorm room was uh, just kind of a common, a small uh, kitchen actually. And so there was a table. And there was a, a young man who I knew who had put off writing a research paper and he stayed up all night typing in that little room, which is down the hall from our dorm room. And, and this, was, this was not electric typewriters. Okay? This is back in the day. So this was uh, a manual typewriter. And all night we kept hearing tap, 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 things. Tap, 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 things. All night. He's trying to finish a, a research paper for the next day. And we were so angry with him. Um, it's human nature to procrastinate. It's Satan's nature to convince us to procrastinate. To delay it. Especially spiritual decisions. And folks, that's not a good combination. The time is now. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. And he said, indeed, the right time is now. Today is a day of salvation. You gain nothing by putting off the spiritual decision to put your house in order. You gain nothing by putting off a decision to serve God. Nothing at all. It doesn't get better. You can't say, well, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, I know I need to give my life to the Lord, but I'm just going to wait a while. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll get a better, uh, uh, you know, get a better option, better offer tomorrow. No, you gain nothing. This is the time. In fact, it, it, you know, you, you take a chance. Take a chance. You can t- take a chance that tomorrow your heart won't be as stirred. Maybe right now you're feeling like, yeah, I, need to, I need to get back to God. Maybe tomorrow you're going to think, who cares? I got time. I got time. I got, I got a job. I'm busy. So you, you lose the opportunity that you have right now. So I want to say to you, don't delay. Put your spiritual house in order today. Trust God. Give your life to God. Trust Him with your life. Determine that you're going to become a praying man, a praying woman who's going to build a base of prayer. So when the problem comes and you can pray uh, that urgent prayer based on that foundation... Determine that you're going to learn to seek God with your whole life. And so God has our lives in His hands. God responds to our prayers. We 
can't lose that conviction to pray. And God is reminding us every day, I believe every day, one way or another, get your house in order. You might be 18 years old, get your house in order. You might be 15 years old, years old, get your house in order. And the time to do that is today.